The market doesn't joke around, so why would you? Get serious. Choose Tasty Trade. Tasty Trade gives you the tools you need to make smarter moves. Dig into data with advanced charting, track profit accurately with order chain trackers, see risk clearly with curve analysis, and trade with low-capped commissions, stocks, options, futures, and more. All on one platform. No wonder serious traders choose Tasty Trade. Join the club, genius. Tasty Trading is a registered broker-dealer and member of FINRA and SIPC. I'm John Fort. You're listening to CNBC's Tech Check. Our show is live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Listen in. Good Wednesday morning and welcome to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort. Carl has the morning off. Coming up on the show today... Return of the Jedi, the Department of Defense taking new bids for its cloud computing contract, plus the Nasdaq hitting another all-time high, buying opportunities in tech, we will discuss, and then a deep dive into China's crackdown on its own tech industry and what it means for some of the stocks that already trade here in the U.S., John. Yeah, and we start with some clouds parting, the Department of Defense canceling the $10 billion cloud computing contract that led Amazon and Microsoft into a legal battle. The DOD previously awarded the project, known as JEDI, to Microsoft. That prompted a swift protest from Amazon. I spoke to current Amazon CEO and former AWS chief Andy Jassy about that in December of 2019. Here's what he told me. We obviously don't believe that JEDI was adjudicated fairly. I think that Uh, Anybody who does a detailed apples-to-apples comparison of the platforms don't come out in the same spot that that procurement did. And most of our customers tell us we're about a couple years ahead of anybody else with regard to functionality and maturity. But, you know, there was significant political interference here. And when you have a sitting president who's willing to be very vocal that they dislike a company and the CEO of that company, it makes it difficult for government agencies, including the DOD, to make objective decisions without fear of reprisal. And speaking of the former president, Donald Trump is announcing that he is suing Facebook, Twitter, and Alphabet executives, a class action lawsuit related to his claims of censorship on the platforms that have uh, extended complete or partial bans on his accounts. Um, you know, that you can see the political reasons for that. I, I guess we'll see the legal merits when we see the cases themselves. But then um, on the Jedi contract itself, let's bring in our Morgan Brennan. Morgan, uh, I remember we were talking about how quickly uh, Amazon came in and did sue. And I mean, this is Andy Jassy's first week on the job. And here it is. This is a win for them. It, it is a win for them, and certainly that is how it's being, you know, being taken by Wall Street as well right now when you just see the reaction in the shares. Uh, it's a win for them. Uh, Microsoft will still likely have a piece of this pie, too. I mean, you had the DOD very explicitly call out both of those names yesterday when it made this news, and it announced that it's scrapping the JEDI contract for what is going to be called the Joint Warfighter Cloud Capability or, Cloud Capability or JWCC cloud contract uh, that is now going to take its place and is now going to be fielded very quickly. 
Um, so, it, so, yes, it's a win for both of them. It's potentially going to be a win based on what the DOD finds um, through its researching process into the fall for some of the other companies that we know had originally been contenders or had hoped to be involved in Jedi as well. Names like Oracle, Google, uh, some IBM, some of the other players. It's going to be interesting to see if you have other names that potentially jump into this mix as well. Maybe some of the defense contract, more traditional defense contractors that have been making big bets uh, in tech and, and in digitization and also potentially names like Palantir, right? Um, but in general, this is going to be seen as a win for both Amazon and Microsoft. Right, Morgan, when we started talking about Jedi years ago, the cloud landscape was so different. It was thought that you could go with one vendor, but now it's being rethought as a multi-vendor approach. And we've seen a lot of private enterprises go that way as well. Um, this also has sort of a cybersecurity element to it as well, doesn't it? The fact that if you use this multi-vendor approach, you're going to have more security. So it makes sense, aside from the drama that has happened over the last few years between Amazon and Microsoft, that the DOD goes this route. 100 percent, Deirdre. That is absolutely the case. That was the case when Jedi was first rolled out and those requests for proposals were uh, initiated as well by the Pentagon was that had been the criticism then that multi-vendor would make more sense from a cybersecurity standpoint. I mean, there's there's also been debates about the idea of implementing mini clouds, too, within DOD, because uh, those can be more siloed and, and more secure, too. I mean, obviously, this is especially in focus right now, given all the hacks and all the cybersecurity breaches we've been seeing, including not that long ago when I think about solar winds into certain government entities. But in general, I think overall, this is seen as um, a key piece of an even bigger, when you talk about the DOD, a key piece of an even bigger push by the U.S. government uh, into cloud computing, into digitization, into the Internet of Things, if you will. Uh, and when you're working as an Amazon or a Microsoft with an entity like the DOD, or in the case of Amazon, the CIA, you're talking about the highest level security clearances, and there's bragging rights that are attached to that too. So presumably, based on what analysts have said following this over the last couple of years, there's those opportunities um, in the commercial or in private sector, too, given the fact that there's that sense of security given those clearances. All right. Yeah, thanks, Morgan. I think a lot of people would question whether multi-vendor essentially and necessarily makes you more secure. Good security makes you more secure, and you can flub it up no matter how many or how few vendors you've got. Um, but that is something that we can discuss with uh, our next guest, more than a thousand companies worldwide have been feeling the effects of the latest ransomware cyber attack linked back to a Russian hacking gang. Joining us now on the global impact and protective measures companies can take, Rubrik CEO Bipul Sina and investor John Thompson of Lightspeed Venture Partners, who's also a Microsoft board member and former CEO of Symantec. Uh, guys, good to have you. Bipul, um, give me your perspective on what seems to me to be the rise in ransomware attacks, which perhaps is linked to the success of them as well, and, and what measures companies should be taking to protect themselves. If you look at uh, the digitization and working from anywhere that has happened in the last uh, 16, 15, 16 months, it has really given rise to attacks, and, and, and bad actors have fundamentally understood that data is the key IP for, for, for everything in the business, and they are directly going after data. And they have found backup as a vulnerability point because legacy 
backup systems is completely vulnerable, and two out of the three attacks is attacking backup system. And and ransomware uh, bad actors they actually attack backup and 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 put your production down, and and ask for ransom. Uh, the best um, defense mechanism against uh, against ransomware is really having a quality backup platform that allows you to get uh, up and running very very fast. Now, John, backups help, but often in these cases lately, we've seen. Uh, the ransomware attackers saying, we're going to divulge your confidential information if you don't pay us, not just keep the information you have. And so they're trying to add this extra incentive uh, to pay. Doesn't that complicate this where backup alone doesn't save you if you don't have your most sensitive data, uh, your secrets protected as well? Well, it speaks to the importance of the platform. And many of the historical or long-serving platforms don't have immutability, don't have built-in firewall protection, don't have all the things that are necessary in today's environment, yet they are prevalent in the marketplace. Candidly, that's why Rubrik has done so well, because their platform is, in fact, modern. It does have embedded security. Ironically enough, in 2005, when I acquired Veritas, the belief that we had at the time was that we needed to integrate security more deeply into backup and recovery. And lo and behold, here we are some 15 or more years later, and that problem still exists. You know, you can put all of these systems and layers and technology in place, but many experts say that preventing bigger future cybersecurity attacks will require a much greater degree of coordination between private and public. Do you think, people, that the U.S. is making progress on this front? The U.S. is definitely making progress. Biden administration has really made the cybersecurity as core part of their agenda. They came up with this zero trust principles, and which is now the NIST principle that, that the government is encouraging everyone to follow. In fact, we built Rubrik with the zero trust data management with data firewall built into it. And, and, and the core principles of this uh, new Biden administration zero trust is Trust no one, authenticate everything, and, and assume that everything else is compromised. And, and that's, that's where the world is going, and that's where the, the, the real defense against ransomware and other future cyber attacks will come from. John, same question to you. Do you think that the U.S. is making progress in terms of that coordination between the private and public sector, especially when it comes to or compared to other countries like Russia or China, which arguably have much deeper integration? Well, I think we are making good progress. There has been or have been a number of meetings between the government and various, candidly, large tech companies on the security issue. And quite frankly, I think as time evolves, we'll have to adopt a set of practices that are more common and more jointly or commonly applied more across the businesses in this country. That being said, I think the Biden administration is off to a good start, at least alerting people to the emerging problems and, quite frankly, suggesting actions that need to be taken. I was with a group just this week where many, many years ago when I was at Semantic, we started an organization called the Cybersecurity Industry Alliance. And the group of leaders that I was with just this week finally concluded we need to restart that organization because we need to have top leaders of security companies interact with and engage with the top leaders in government. And that's what moved the agenda back in the early 20s, if you will, or 
2000s. But it's now time to do it again. John, that brings us back to the Jedi contract and what comes after it now that it has been canceled. Uh, now it appears that that's going to be multi-vendor. Do you think that uh, will make it more secure? Will it raise new security challenges for the government to implement across different platforms and vendors? Well, I think it, what really matters there is what platforms do they choose and how secure are those platforms? And as importantly, how well do they interoperate across one another? And I think given the growing exposure of ransomware and cyber attacks, there clearly will be a lot more focus on that in this cycle than you've ever seen before, I think. I also wanted to ask you, this is our first time getting to talk to you since you handed over the reins as chairman at Microsoft uh, to Satya Nadella. What's your perspective on what that means and why that's appropriate, given that uh, investors recently, as a, a couple of years ago, were pushing pretty hard to separate the chairman and CEO roles? Well, for me, I think it has more to do with the performance of the company under Satya's leadership than anything else. And that is, in my opinion, he's earned the right to be chairman of the board here. Additionally, I have a philosophy about board service, which is I don't stay on boards until I'm 90 years old. So at some point, I will transition off. The question then becomes, who, in fact, becomes the chair? In my sense, is there are two important issues. One, the transition to chair, and as important is the transition to the next CEO. And we're not sure when that's going to occur, but I sure want Satya to be around to manage that process, just as I did in the last cycle. Great perspective. Could only get it from you, John Thompson, Bipul Sinha. Thanks to both of you. Thank you. Thank you. And after the break, more on China's tech crackdown. Those names, some of yesterday's biggest laggards on the NDX, falling again this morning. As you can see, though, JD.com in the green. Tech Check is just getting started. What does it mean to be rich? Maybe it's less about reaching a magic number and more about discovering the magic in life. At Edward Jones, our dedicated financial advisors are the people you can count on for financial strategies that help support a life you love. Because the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Learn more about our comprehensive approach to planning at edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Welcome to the Canva guided meditation for stress at work. Impending deadline? Generate Canva presentations in seconds. So fast. Brainstorm got too big? Ooh. Summarize with AI in a click. Click, click, click. Writer's block? Release with Canva Magic Write. Magical. Stress less and save time at canva.com. Designed for work. Cybersecurity stocks getting a boost following the recent cyber attack over the weekend. Prime cybersecurity ETF up 37% this past year amid an increase in attacks. For the week, we are seeing Centine loans surging to about 20%. Palo Alto Networks <clears throat> up around 4%, seeing its best daily performance yesterday since late May. And Tenable gaining around 3%, breaking a five-day losing streak yesterday. John? 
Uh, and now you may have noticed a trend in online media where instead of relying on digital advertising, more businesses are building out ways for the audience to directly pay for content. Substack's one example, and we'll talk to the CEO later this hour. But first, paid content is the topic of this edition of The Thread. First, ads. In theory, they are great. A company offers content for free, gathers a big audience, and then charges companies to show them ads. This model worked for media outlets for generations. But in the digital era, there's a catch. Ads work best when you have the biggest audience and you know what they want. Advantage, Google, and Facebook. Google dominates in search and mobile and knows what you want because it knows where you are and what you're searching for. Facebook has the biggest audience in social and messaging, and it knows what you want because it follows you around the web while you shop, and it knows who your friends are. And that's why Google and Facebook know which ads to sell, uh, and they're worth more than a trillion dollars each. Meanwhile, newspapers and content sites are laying off workers left and right. But, but, what if you didn't need an audience of billions for your content? Because your content was so good, people would pay to see and hear it. That's what Netflix figured out from the beginning, and now we're seeing other tech platforms like Zoom and Spotify launching platforms to pay for events. Social media is getting into the game, too. TikTok will soon let users buy personalized videos from creators called Shoutout, and Twitter and Instagram will let audiences pay for exclusive content from their favorite users via super follows and exclusive stories. Here's where Substack fits in. The four-year-old newsletter platform lets writers charge for their reporting and opinions while Substack takes a 10% cut. But now Facebook wants in. Last week, the social media giant launched Bulletin, its own newsletter service that takes no cut from writers for now. Facebook became a juggernaut under the ad model, and it's already introduced ways to tie this new platform into the existing ad-driven one. To tie it all together, paying for content is getting more popular. The battles over whose platform will enable it. D. And John, let's keep this discussion going. We have the perfect person for it. Joining us now, SV Angel. Founder Ron Conway, early investor in some of the companies you may have heard of, like Google and Facebook. Ron, good morning to you, and thanks for being with us. As John just mentioned, you know, the ad-based model created these trillion-dollar companies. What sustains them? Can a creator-based model ever be a significant driver? Yes, I absolutely believe that the uh, creator-based model is a new and growing segment that allows uh, companies to thrive on the internet. Uh, But these companies, keep in mind, most of them get their, they grow because they become influencers on social networks. And then from that, they build their bases. TikTok would be a great example. Substack is a great example of the new creator economy. Um, But they still rely on social media to go gather up uh, the consumers of that content. Airbnb and Pinterest are great examples of companies who originally built their base off of Google, Facebook, Amazon. Uh, But now their brands are so powerful that they can do that independently. But remember, when a company is getting started... They rely on Google, Facebook, and Amazon to build their audiences originally. Google, Facebook, and Amazon have replaced uh, online the newspapers, shopping malls, TV, and radio. Uh, so Google, Facebook, Amazon do provide a crucial, a crucial ecosystem uh, uh, for yeah. the 
Ron, yeah, I, I, I get your point. Brand and platforms, the platforms have been very important in building up these creators. But, you know, creators, many of them would argue that the platforms wouldn't be where they are without them at the same time. And they've largely gone unpaid in the case of Google and Facebook. Um, and there's new platforms that are serving them better. Uh, do you what do you think is an appropriate amount for them to be handing over to the likes of Facebook or Apple or Google? Is it 30 percent? Is it 10 percent? Is it nothing? Uh, it's certainly not nothing. Uh, but the those business models are evolving as this new, you know, creative content provider economy uh, is evolving. But, yes, there should be something. And I, and I think that'll evolve and it'll be based on the quality of the content. Ron, if you are a creator or a creative company, can you trust the kind of ad driven juggernauts in this paid content era just as much as you can trust a pure play? I mean, I, I think Substack would make the argument that the Facebooks, the Googles have an incentive to continue to feed the ad model just as much as build out something new. So maybe the uh, incentives are more aligned with the newer players. What do you think? It's all based on the quality of the content that the, the new creative economy is offering. If, if their content is compelling, they will get equal market share. Well, but I mean, if you're the um, content creator, I mean, if you're the content creator with quality content, you get to choose who you want to partner up with to distribute it. And I mean, should you partner up with Facebook with Bulletin or should you partner up with Substack whose uh, interests are more aligned with yours? Well, then it's a matter of economics. Uh, that, that is where there will be a negotiation and wh whoever provides the highest uh, 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 commission or compensation, uh, they will win. That's what you know, the free economy is all about. And and Google and Facebook will have to earn earn that business. Right. But Facebook can subsidize. Right. When you take the example of Substack versus Facebook's bulletin, Facebook isn't going to be charging anything. And you just said that that's not the right amount. They should be charging something. So who do creators trust a Facebook who's not going to charge anything now, but may turn around in the future and charge? I, I think it's all evolving. You know, we're we're in the first inning of this great new emerging market, and I, I think it it has to evolve. It's hard to say. <laughs> okay, well, we will see, and we'll be speaking to the Substack CEO later. So we'll ask for his thoughts on this. Ron, thanks so much for being with us, Ron Conway. Oh, thank you. Thank you. And up next, are the work-from-home names overbought? Plus, DD shares fall again, now down about 15% from last week's debut. More Tech Check is straight ahead. Hi, I'm Ben. I suffer from a condition called writer's block. It strikes when I'm at work. That's why I choose Canva Magic Write. It works fast generating texts in seconds thanks to AI. Common side effects include increased productivity, compliments from coworkers, feelings of satisfaction. Now I can say bye-bye to writer's block. Ask your boss if Canva Magirite is right for you at canva.com, designed for work. Canva. 
After the break, Julia Borston joins us from Sun Valley. Plus, check out shares of Peloton. If it can finish up better than 3% today, it would be the seventh time it has done so in the last month. Stay with us. More Tech Check is coming up. Welcome back to Tech Check. I'm Deirdre Boza with John Fort and Julia Borston joining us from Sun Valley. Coming up, more on China's tech crackdown. DD shares are down another 5% right now as those stocks have gotten crushed. But first, let's get a news update with Rahel Solomon. Good morning, Rahel. Good morning. And here's what's happening at this hour. The Bill Melinda Gates Foundation says that it will name new trustees to help oversee the charity's work and that Melinda French Gates could resign in two years if she and Bill are unable to continue to work together after their divorce. The foundation also announcing a $15 billion donation from its founders, which will bring the total endowment to about $65 billion. U.S. Treasury is taking a break from their rally, the yield on the 10-year falling below 1.3%, and also hitting a four-and-a-half-month low before rebounding. Traders are citing concerns about the global economic recovery and also the unwinding of large short positions. BlackRock is staying underweight on treasuries and other developed market debt. The world's largest asset manager out with its mid-year investment outlook. BlackRock is also cutting its outlook for U.S. stocks to neutral, even as the S&P and Nasdaq hit new all-time highs this morning. And Ford's Mustang Mach-E has been named Car and Driver's Electric Vehicle of the Year. Reviewers saying that the crossover blends good styling, competitive pricing, and fun. You're now up to date. John, I'll send it back to you. Rahel, thank you. And China has been cracking down on big tech. Bloomberg reporting this morning that Beijing's state council is considering closing the loophole that allows Chinese companies to debut on U.S. exchanges a day after the council announced plans to revise rules on overseas listings. The announcement comes after the weekend suspension of ride-hailing app Didi from Chinese app stores over security concerns, they said. The move sending Didi's stock down more than 16 percent from its NYSE debut last Wednesday. Beijing's moves have cost China's tech giants $823 billion in market value, with the Hang Seng Tech Index down nearly 30% from its February high. Joining us now, author of What the U.S. Can Learn from China and former professor at Peking University, Ann Lee. And great to have you. I'm hoping you can help us understand what might really be going on here. I hear this explanation about data security, but I don't understand why China would be concerned that China ride-hailing data would end up in the U.S. because there'd be no reason to bring it here. Is this really about data security? Is it about control? Uh, it is a national security issue for China, and let me explain why. So Didi's ride-sharing app was used by many Chinese government officials. So uh, on their servers, there was information on like where they were meeting, which secret roads they used, a lot of information that's highly sensitive about Chinese government officials' going um, ins and outs and so forth. And so because China, uh, Didi's company has an independent uh, director that was appointed to represent the major investors, SoftBank, Uber, Apple, on Didi, and that person, that independent director, is a West Point graduate, uh, this is the reason why they see this as a major national security issue, because they don't know if this guy is going to report things to the U.S. government, given the heightened tensions between U.S. and China. And so this, uh, you know, was a major concern. They brought it to Didi. Didi ignored them. And China's government says we cannot have a company challenging the Chinese government on this. And but this Dan is why. 
Yeah. The part about this I don't get. I mean, uh, the U.S. government doesn't have access to Apple's data, uh, you know, or data on Apple iOS users about where they are necessarily, what messages they're sending because of encryption rules that Apple has adopted. So why would a board member uh, of Didi have access to rider information on Didi's service? That doesn't seem like an issue of where the listing is taking place necessarily. I mean, I'm not a technologist, so I don't know what the capabilities are in terms of cyber spying because we know that takes place and, uh, and certainly there are very sophisticated applications that can probably get around things. And we know from uh, you know, the Snowden's uh, accusations of NSA doing lots of spying on Americans you know, using uh, tech companies here. Uh, to get access to private data. I mean, I think that that is a concern of the Chinese government because they don't know what those capabilities are. And given that if it's listed in the U.S. stock exchange, uh, U.S. investors or the U.S. government could basically use a Chinese company to blackmail the uh, Chinese government saying, oh, maybe we don't recognize Chinese patents anymore and therefore we're going to, you know, take that information and develop our own technology using Chinese know-how. I mean, they just don't want those kind of vulnerabilities uh, exposed. And that is, you know, part of the reason why they are trying to crack down on DD, trying to uh, strengthen their privacy uh, rules around right. uh, IPO listings and so forth. And at the same time, and Didi's IPO raises some broader questions about Chinese companies that are listed here or ones that want to list in the U.S. If Didi was, in fact, warned by regulators, Chinese regulators, ahead of that listing, that it should delay its IPO and investors were not informed who's responsible. Is that Didi? Is it the Wall Street investment banks that were supposed to do due diligence on this deal? Is it another party? And do you think that this should scare off investors interested in all Chinese companies? Uh, it's difficult for me to comment on that simply because I wasn't there to observe the whole process of which information was shared by whom and whether the due diligence was thorough enough. Uh, I can basically say that for investors, uh, they should just be aware that uh, the Chinese government's you know, objective is always to protect, uh, you know, the national security interests of their government, their country. Uh, and, you know, for U.S. investors, it's about profits. And so, you know, as, you know, these Chinese companies are being hit right now uh, in the stock exchanges, I could say that it's a political issue. Uh, I think that it is short term. It is a short term buying opportunity because, once these political issues are addressed, I think these companies will continue to grow, especially outside China. Uh, and that would mean that, you know, there's, you know, infinite more upside here uh, after they get past, you know, these hurdles. Hmm. Yes. Well, I guess uh, if um, markets outside China believe they can trust these companies after they bow to the Chinese government. And Lee, thank you. Thank you. Media moguls now meeting in Sun Valley, and consolidation is top of mind for a lot of execs there. Our Julia Borston's there all week with live coverage. Hey, Julia. 
Well, John, of course, a lot of deals come out of this conference. And this year, the conference comes on the heels of Discovery's merger with Warner Media, as well as Amazon buying MGM. Discovery CEO David Zaslav telling me that despite just doing that big deal, he's not done with deals yet. We're just about great content, great talent, taking it around the world in every language. So I think that gives us an advantage. But I do think that there'll be more consolidation. We want to get this deal done. Um, but over time, I think that there's a lot of assets out there that have good IP that will probably find homes. Warner Media Chief Jason Kyler is also here. It is still unclear what his role will be, if any, at the combined company. But his streaming service, HBO Max, is in focus, along with Sherry Redstone's Paramount Plus, which is, of course, part of Viacom CBS. There are questions about whether her company could be a buyer or a seller as streamers look for more scale to compete with Netflix. Netflix co-CEOs Ted Sarandos and Reid Hoffman also both here. They arrived yesterday. There are also some other media moguls here, including Barry Diller and Imagine Entertainment's Brian Grazer. Grazer told me that he thinks all of this consolidation and streaming competition is a win for creators like him. And then there are a bunch of tech categories that are also in focus here, represented by a number of CEOs. We have crypto with Zappo and Coinbase both here. In the biotech space, there's Ginkgo Bioworks and Illumina, as well as a PLC. And then there are some cybersecurity players here as well, Tanium and Lookout. And I'm hearing that, of course, cybersecurity in particular is top of mind for a lot of the CEOs here across industries. Deirdre? There and probably everywhere. Julia, thank you for that. And we're also looking forward to your first on CNBC interview later today with LinkedIn founder Reid Hoffman. That's at 4 p.m. Eastern on Closing Bell. Stay with us. Tech Check is back in just two minutes. from home stocks are up big over the past month, but are these names poised for correction as they rise above street estimates? Dom Chu is breaking it all down for us. Dom. All right. So Deirdre, if we take a look at some of the big winners from that work from home trade era, some of the cloud infrastructure, remote work and cybersecurity related stocks posting those big gains over the past month. We're talking names like Fortinet, perhaps getting an extra boost given the recent jump in hacking and focus on cybersecurity. Now, some of these moves have actually pushed these names above or in line with their average analyst target prices, with Fortinet, by the way, trading more than 10 percent higher than the average analyst target price. That's according to data from FactSet at this point. Altastian just about in line with its target price, as you can see here. And from a ratings perspective, analysts are roughly split between buy and hold ratings for all three of these names. So we'll have to see whether the players like these are nearing a pullback or if that big run can continue over the past month. Then there's the more consumer-focused names like Zoom Communications, Peloton, Roku. You know them. They were bouncing off their lows from earlier in the year, but they're still trading below their recent highs. And unlike those more behind-the-scenes players that we just ran through, these names are trading just below their average analyst target prices here. You can see signaling that there might be perhaps a little bit more room to run 
despite the run that we've seen. It's also worth noting, by the way, guys, the street is largely bullish on both Roku and Peloton. 75% or more of analysts who cover those stocks have them at a buy or equivalent rating. That's according, again, to FactSet. So keep an eye on some of these names. They've seen a resurgence given what we've seen in terms of, John, the uh, variant kind of emergence from COVID-19. So we'll see whether or not that work from home trade still has some legs here. Okay, popular with the critics at least. Thank you, Dom. Sure. And still to come, an exclusive with the CEO of Substack. Stay with us. Newsletter company Substack was founded just four years ago, but it has the media industry on its heels, putting power in the hands of writers by allowing them to connect and monetize directly with their audiences. The company reportedly valued at around $650 million following a $65 million funding round led by Andreessen Horowitz this past spring. And it has spawned copycats from Twitter to Facebook. Surprise, surprise. Joining us now in an exclusive interview, Substack CEO, co-founder, Chris Best. Chris, thanks for being with us this morning. Let's start with a very basic question. What is Substack's role in the media landscape. Can your newsletters, a direct-to-readers newsletters, replace a traditional newsroom, should they? Thanks for having me. You know, we started Substack because we think that what you read matters, and the current media landscape that's dominated by social media is making us angry and dumb and is kind of breaking our brains. And we think that we need a real alternative to the business model the engagement-based business model that that creates. And so we see Substack, which is an independent, a platform for independent writers, as an alternative model that puts writers and readers in charge for the benefit of all. How is that different than a traditional newsroom, Chris? I understand your point about social media, but are traditional newsrooms still doing and serving that role? So the thing that Substack makes possible is for you as a writer to go independent didn't used to be possible for you to strike out on your own and connect directly with your audience. And so you have this incentive to earn and keep the trust of your audience rather than, uh, you know, serve, serve whatever, whatever other, other thing you had to serve before. So, Chris, um, this reminds me a bit of Neva, the search engine that we had on just a few days ago that's doing paid and subscription rather than free search subsidized by ads. And the CEO co-founder there said it's a matter of incentives. Like, yeah, Google could launch a paid search engine and say that they're not going to use your data, but their business model incentivizes them to do otherwise. Is that your argument for why Facebook's bulletin uh, isn't an alternative to Substack? Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, at the heart of Substack is this new model that changes the, the fundamental rules of how the business works. Right. It changes the incentive structure. So readers know that on Substack, they're subscribing to someone they can trust that has the incentive to earn and keep their trust. And Facebook is a whole business that's built on advertising, that's built on engagement. And so if they try to make a clone of Substack, it's like an oil company launching a solar energy thing. It's, it's laudable. It's cool. But it's they're not going to shut down the pumps. But how are you going to survive? Because Facebook is big. And when they launch a newsletter platform, they can afford to undercut you on price and, uh, and let writers uh, you know, charge and not take a cut. Um, and meanwhile, as far as I can see, you don't have an app right, to help do sign up because so, you'd have to give Apple a cut 
if you did that, I mean, that, that's a lot of big powers to fight, isn't it? Look, there's no way to be a successful company without ruffling a few feathers and without going through the big people trying to copy you. And I think the thing at the heart of Substack that makes us different is that we're a company that's built for writers, right? Our whole business model is designed to, to support writers. We make it free to publish to start. And then when you make, we only make money when the writers make money. And so the writers know what our incentive is, right? The incentive alignment isn't just between the readers and the writers. It's also between the writers and Substack. They know what we're doing. They know we're here. They know that they can trust us when we say that we're here in support of writers. And I don't think he, that Facebook can say that. Well, Facebook is trying to say that, Chris, and they're trying to align their incentives better. As we talked about earlier with Ron Conway in the show, Facebook has sort of grown on this ad-based model, but it's increasingly looking towards this creator model. Why should creators be skeptical of this? I loved uh, the response to Bulletin saying that uh, the Rings of Sauron we're free also. But for our viewers that may not understand the Lord of the Rings reference, can you explain it? <laughs> yeah, I mean, face, the, the, the reason this new model is taking off, this model where people want to connect directly with writers they trust, with independent creators, it exists in opposition to the current status quo on the internet, which is that everything is free um, and you pay with your engagement and you the job of the platform is to keep the users addicted and to grab as much of your attention as possible in order to show you advertising. And the model that Substack is at the forefront of that this, this, this new thing that's being born is in opposition to that. It's taking that down. It's saying to people, hey, look, there's a real alternative way to spend your attention in your life. You know that these feeds that you're reading are making you crazy. Here's a real alternative. And to writers to say, here's a real alternative model. You don't have to try and get a million clicks. You just have to get an audience of people that trust you. And the people that bring about this new model are not going to be the people that created the problem in the first place. Right. And by the way, the, ring, the rings of Sauron were evil. <laughs> if we put it simply, yes. Chris, last question for you. You describe Substack as a friendly, better incentivized home for journalism, but the majority of newsletters are still personal writing, opinion pieces, research, analysis. How do you incentivize original reporting? Or do you think that traditional media still plays the best role there? I definitely think that Substack exists alongside traditional media. I mean, we don't see ourselves as disrupting traditional media. We see ourselves as disrupting social media. Um, I do think that there's a, a wide array of types of, of types of writing that work on Substack. Um, there is a lot of opinion. There's a lot of analysis. There's a lot of culture. There's a lot of humor. The journalism part is is exciting, and I think that we can uh, play a major role there. Substack launched a local uh, Substack local program that's that's helping restart local journalism in places where it's uh, where it's been struggling financially. I think that we can do a lot, and the journalism on Substack is great. But we're not going to be. We don't need to be the only the only answer to that. Well, Chris, we look forward to seeing how Substack evolves. Thanks for being with us, Chris Best, co-founder and CEO of Substack. Thank you. Meanwhile, we continue to monitor former President Trump's event in Bedminster, announcing this hour that he will sue Facebook, Google, and Twitter and their CEOs. Uh, we'll take a look at that legal threat next. New 
this hour, former President Trump filing a class action lawsuit against Facebook, Twitter and Alphabet. Eamon Javers is in D.C. with the latest. Eamon, what's going on? Yeah, hi, Deirdre. Well, the former president just wrapped up a press conference in Bedminster, New Jersey, a short time ago. Uh, he laid out his argument in this class action lawsuit that he says he's filing today uh, against the tech giants for removing him from their services, for violating their terms of service. And he brought up his lawyer to make the legal case here. And what the lawyer is saying is they're going to argue that uh, these entities are, in fact, governmental entities, and therefore this is a freedom of speech issue. There you can see the site uh, in Bedminster where that press conference just wrapped up a couple of minutes ago. Uh, they're going to argue uh, that this is about freedom of speech and the First Amendment and that the Supreme Court should be the ultimate arbiter of who can say what on social media, not the social media companies themselves. The difficulty that the former president's going to have here, of course, is that these are private companies. Uh, and as private companies, they have terms of service, and they say that the former president violated those terms of service uh, in his uh, calls to potential violence around the insurrection of January 6th. That was the inflection point at which those services decided to ban him in the first place. So the former president airing a number of grievances today in New Jersey uh, and fleshing out what this lawsuit is going to look like. We'll see if it gets any traction in the courts. They say they like the venue uh, in southern Florida where they filed this lawsuit, Deirdre. Uh, yeah, Eamon, that, that's a novel argument, it sounds like. There's also been quite a it bit is. of Republican fundraising email traffic off of the uh, big tech's um, assault on conservatives, as they would frame it. So to what degree is this a political argument just as much as it's a legal one? It's a political argument. It's venting, frankly, John. The president, former president is frustrated uh, with his in inability to access those services, though he was asked during this uh, press gathering that he had whether or not he would rejoin Twitter and Facebook and YouTube and the like if he was able to get access. And he said, I don't know that I would necessarily. Remember, some of his supporters have formed their own social media entities that they're trying to gain some traction with. Uh, if the former president is going to be on anywhere, he might want to go on those anyway. So he's saying, you know, I want to get back on, but I'm not sure if you, even if they let me, I'll, I'll rejoin. Right. Eamon, some might say he's looking for attention here. What I find interesting, the presser was, what, an hour long or more? And few networks actually took it. I think Fox Business stayed with it the longest. What does that say about his visibility, his influence, since he's been taken off those platforms? Yeah, look, he's a waning figure uh, politically, certainly in terms of the mainstream media, and, and he uh, goes right after the mainstream media in this presser. He, he thinks that uh, those of us uh, who work for large news organizations are biased against him and ultimately are unfair to him. Uh, and this is part of his series of complaints, big media and big technology as well. Eamon Javers, thank you. Uh, just want to note, before we hit noon, Sentinel-1, which we have mentioned several times, up 5%. Uh, up about 23% on the week. That'll do it for us. Halftime Report starts now. Let's get to the judge. You've been listening to CNBC's Tech Check. You can always catch us live weekdays at 11 a.m. Eastern. Life is a highway, and on it there will be many chicken sandwiches. But there's only one crispy. so go ahead and hit the turn signal if you know about this juicy gem of a detour.